Good afternoon, everyone. I have this audience trained so well. You sound so lively. How many of you slept here last night after the uh, Christian lecture? Okay, good. I hope you were comfortable. Uh, I'm Paul Levengood, president of the Virginia Historical Society, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to today's banner lecture here in the beautiful Robbins Family Forum. As always, I thank uh, the Richmond Times-Dispatch, whose support helps make these lectures possible. So before we proceed with today's program, let me remind you of our next banner lecture, which will take place here at 5.30 p.m. So it's an evening banner lecture. You can note that on your calendar. On Wednesday, May 7th. That day, a good friend of the society, and many of you know Gary Gallagher, will deliver a banner lecture that, uh, entitled The Spring of 1864, A Season of Hope in the United States and the Confederacy. Lecture is going to be co-sponsored with the Richmond National Battlefield Park. Our final See You in Class program of the spring semester, if you will, begins on May 1st. That day, um, Ed Lengel will lead the first of a two-part class entitled The Outbreak of World War I in Europe, August 1914. We are, after all, just about at the uh, centennial mark of the beginning of the Great War. Those classes will meet at 5.30 on Thursday, May 1st, and again a week later on May 8th. Our next behind-the-scenes tour, which especially right now with all this construction and galleries being closed, is a great opportunity for you to see things in the VHS collection, will take place on Saturday, April 26th, right before the garden party. At 10.30 a.m., Nelson Langford, our Vice President for Programs, will lead a tour that combines two of his passions. It's entitled Gardens Throughout Virginia History. So as the spring comes, you'll be interested to see um, something in the past about, about our uh, fascination in the Old Dominion with horticulture. And you can find more information about any of these upcoming classes, lectures, bus trips, behind-the-scenes tours, and other special events on our website, vahistorical.org, or you can pick up information at the museum shop as you leave. Now, one little piece of business. If you have a cell phone, please take it out. Check and make sure it is silent, off, disabled, broken, whatever it'll do to keep it from going off during our speaker's talk. In 1813, British warships appeared in the Chesapeake Bay to punish Americans for declaring war on the empire. Over many nights, Hundreds of slaves paddled out to the vessels, seeking protection for their families from the ravages of slavery. The runaways pressured the British into becoming liberators. As guides, pilots, sailors, and marines, the former slaves used their intimate knowledge of the countryside to transform the war. Tidewater masters had long dreaded their slaves as a, quote, internal enemy. By mobilizing that enemy, the war ignited the deepest fears of Chesapeake slaveholders, it also alienated Virginians from a national government that had neglected their defense. Alan Taylor pursued graduate study at Brandeis University, receiving his PhD in American history in 1986. He taught in the history department at Boston University from 1987 to 1994. Since 1994, he has been a professor at the University of California at Davis. But to the Commonwealth's great gain, beginning this August, he will hold the Thomas Jefferson Memorial Foundation Chair in the Corcoran History Department at the University of Virginia. 
Taylor has published seven books, including William Cooper's Town, Power and Persuasion on the Frontier of the Early Republic, which won the 1996 Pulitzer Prize for History, in addition to the Bancroft and Beveridge Prizes. Other books include The Civil War of 1812, American Citizens, British Subjects, Irish Rebels, and Indian Allies, and most recently, The Internal Enemy, Slavery and War in Virginia, 1772 to 1832. In breaking news, which some of you may have seen, I am delighted to report that on Monday, The Internal Enemy was awarded the 2014 Pulitzer Prize for History. Absolutely. And that makes Professor Taylor only the fourth person to have won that award twice. Here's a quiz, and Alan, you can't answer this. Can you name the other two-time winners of the Pulitzer Prize for History? Robert Carroll, no? Good guess, but that was in biography he's won it. Biography. Here they are. I won't leave you hanging. Bernard Balin, Paul Horgan, and Margaret Leach, the only three other winners twice. So... We are in, uh, re really in for a treat, uh, and please join me in welcoming Alan Taylor, who will speak to us today on the topic, The Internal Enemy. Thank you, Paul, for that very kind introduction. I'm, I'm grateful to Paul and to Nelson and Graham for their help in arranging this talk, and I'm grateful to all of you for coming in the midst of a beautiful spring day uh, and to hear me talk about history. Um, it's not always easy to get a good crowd for a talk about the War of 1812. Uh, uh, I uh, want some organizers in Philadelphia who were great optimists, and they booked a hall that was at least twice as big as this in terms of the number of seats. I think there are 450 seats in here. So there were 900 seats in there, and 40 people showed up <laughs> and arranged themselves randomly among the 900 <laughs> seats. So it's much better to be in, in a room where you're, uh, there are so many of you, and it's um, filling up the room. Uh, I wanted to talk about this phenomena of enslaved people who escaped, uh, seized their freedom, and exploited the British presence uh, in the Chesapeake. And I want to do so by looking at one especially dramatic episode. But it's, it's not that the enslaved people, all of them who did escape during the war, uh, did so all at once. They did so in many smaller scale, occasionally moderate scale escapes over many nights over a period of two and a half years. These escapes began almost as soon as the British came in force into Chesapeake Bay in February and March of 1813, and they lasted uh, even beyond the ratification of the peace treaty in mid-February in 1815. And when it was all said and done, my estimate is that 3,400 people from Virginia and Maryland um, seized their freedom. And this is the greatest number to escape to freedom in a two-and-a-half-year period um, between the end of the American Revolution and the start of the Civil War. But it's an episode that almost nobody today knows anything about and which I knew nothing about until I started uh, doing the research that revealed this story. 
Now, the episode I want to talk about uh, occurred in October of 1814 along the Potomac River in King George County. So you can, we have a map here, and you can, uh, King George County is south of Alexandria. And what happened was that a handful of young men stole a canoe. And this would not have been easy to do in October of 1814, although there were hundreds of canoes and boats along the tidewater used as the basic form of transportation. By October of 1814, they were all locked up in order to try to stop enslaved people from escaping to freedom. Somehow, they got this canoe loose from the lock at night without waking up their masters. They then paddled across the Potomac to the Maryland shore where their target could be found. And it was a ferry boat, a much bigger boat, which also must have been locked up. And somehow they got that free without waking anybody up on the Maryland side of the river. They then went back to the Virginia side and loaded up 17 people, men, women, and children. So the point of doing this in these two stages was to get a boat big enough so that whole families could escape to freedom. They then uh, proceeded downstream. Uh, now this would be a ferry boat that would be powered uh, by um, oars. And uh, they have to get downstream and find a British warship as soon as possible before pursuit catches up to them. Now fortunately for them, it wasn't until the morning that their masters and overseers woke up and discovered that the slaves were gone. And according to one deposition, quote, had taken many articles out of Mr. Abraham Huey's dwelling house in the course of the night and all their own articles and effects out of their houses, end quote. Armed white men rowed a swift boat in pursuit down the river, but in vain for the former slaves had escaped to a warship. Now, there are several patterns in this escape which I think are worthy of comment because they're very revealing of the overall phenomena. First of them is that uh, the people in this escape didn't all come from one property. We sometimes have an image of slave communities as being defined by plantation boundaries. And that really does not work for the Tidewater or really for most of Virginia in the early republic. It's much more common for enslaved people to work on farms and to be in groups of two, three, four, five. In a county like King George County, uh, half of the heads of household would own a slave. But the average number that they would own would be between three and four. There are very few very large holdings of slaves. The kind of image that we have come, coming from Gone with the Wind of hundreds of slaves belonging to one family. That's pretty uncommon. It's more common in the Deep South, but even in the Deep South, uh, more common is for slaves to experience this in relatively small numbers on farms. And the subdivision of slaves and their families among many owners was an ongoing process that was accelerated by the American Revolution. 
And it's a prime reason why enslaved people are looking for opportunities, very preciously rare opportunities, where they might escape as entire families. But to do so, they're not all going to escape from one farm or plantation. Instead, they're going to come from several farms and plantations because families have been divided up. Husbands and wives usually lived on different farms. Their children were usually scattered on different farms. Their parents were on a different farm. If they were lucky, they were still in the same county. If they were unlucky, family members had been sold to the Deep South, and they would never be seen again. So in this particular escape, they are coming from four different farms. And this uh, helps to reveal the lines of African-American communities which transcend particular plantation or farm boundaries. They have to travel ordinarily at night when they're not working in order to find partners, uh, to be with husbands and wives, to find friends, uh, to visit their children, to visit their parents. And it is through these nocturnal visits over paths uh, and uh, across streams that they are constituting African-American communities in a rural setting in Virginia. And these escapes suddenly shine a light on that phenomena because I find this time and time again in these escapes that people are not just going from one property ordinarily, they are going from multiple farms and they do this at night. Second, these were especially valuable slaves in the eyes of their masters. Uh, among the escapes you find every sort of enslaved person. You find field hands, you find house servants, and you find artisans. But you find disproportionate numbers of artisans and house slaves. And they were valued uh, more highly in monetary terms by their masters. And their masters felt especially betrayed because they naively thought that slaves whom they had taught, that they had treated just a bit better, would be grateful for that and would remain loyal to them. But it's in fact uh, those enslaved people who have a little more education and have a little more experience with uh, travelers who are most eager to seize their freedom when they can. Another pattern is age. Uh, the oldest person in this escape among the 17 was 35 years old. And so there is a, a skew in the age structure. It tends to be uh, young men, young women, and their children who go. And it tends not to be older people. And then finally, this is an escape that shows very careful planning. This was not some sort of spontaneous emotional response. This is something where, imagine what they had to do. They had to steal that canoe. They had to steal the ferry boat. They had to come back. They had to fill it up with their family members, fill it up with the property from their own cabins, and somehow help themselves to some small compensation for their work by stealing stuff from Abraham Hoey. Now, five and a half years later, the leader of the escape wrote a letter to Abraham Hui. Oh, that didn't work. Let me try this again. 
is this PDF? Let me try this. There it is. Okay. This is the letter. And one of the wonderful things, and I, I've worked with hundreds and thousands of these of letters from the period of the early republic, and I've had the enormous good fortune to do a lot of research here. Uh, this letter did not come, however, from the Virginia Historical Society's collections. It can't, comes from the National Archives. And I will explain a bit later uh, why it's there. But one of the wonderful things about letters written in the early 19th century is that the writers would put the place and the date in the upper right-hand corner. So I realize this can be tough to read. Um, I, I'm, I'm used to reading such letters because that's what I do for a job. Uh, but what it says on the top is it says Preston, Nova Scotia, May 21st, 1820. So this is five and a half years after that escape. And it's being written by the leader of the escape who has settled near Halifax, Nova Scotia, in the township of Preston, which is the number one township where refugees, African-American refugees from the War of 1812, ended up living. Now, there were other townships around Halifax that they also went to in, in somewhat smaller numbers, uh, especially Hammond's Plains. Others ended up in New Brunswick or in Trinidad in the West Indies. But this particular man ended up in Nova Scotia, which was the single most significant destination for the refugees from the War of 1812. He was thriving as a blacksmith, and he wanted Huey to know it. <laughs> now, when he had worked for Huey, he had been considered Huey's most valuable slave an artisan and especially a skilled artisan such as a blacksmith were, had a especially high value. So uh, in, the, um, in the market for slaves in Virginia in 1814, a prime field hand would ordinarily cost somewhere between $300 and $500, but a blacksmith would cost $800, and Shanklin was valued at $800. Now, to be a blacksmith requires great physical strength, but it also requires great mental ability and an ability to keep accounts. So people are often surprised to see a letter written by a former slave with the thought that slaves were all illiterate. I'm not so surprised, especially for this period of time, before Nat Turner's Rebellion of 1831. After that rebellion, it becomes criminalized to teach slaves to read and write. Before then, it's not exactly encouraged, but it happens, and it's not criminalized. And this is the peak period, then, for literacy among enslaved people, is between the Revolution and 1831. Now, that's not to say that most of them were literate. I wouldn't go that far at all. But I would say there's a significant minority of them. I cannot give you a percentage. I don't know if it's possible to calculate a percentage. But I can say that literate slaves were quite frequently found in Virginia of that time. Okay, so what does Franklin have to say in his letter to his former master? 
Now, I, I suspect that you've all read this letter carefully now, and what I have to say will be redundant. But on the off chance uh, that this isn't perfectly legible to you, I will read it. It says, Sir, I take this opportunity of writing these lines to inform you how I am situated here. I have a shop and set of tools of my own and am doing very well. When I was with you, you treated me very ill. And for that reason, I take the liberty of informing you that I'm doing as well as you, if not better. <laughs> when I was with you, I worked very hard, and you neither gave me money nor any satisfaction. But since I've been here, I am able to make gold and silver as well as you. The night that Coakley stopped me, he was very strong, but I showed him that subtlety was far preferable to strength and brought away others with me who, thank God, are all doing well. So I remain Bartlett Shanklin. And you can see the pride he takes in his signature, which is very well practiced. He's as proud of his signature as John Hancock was. He's a very proud man. P.S. My love to all my friends. I hope they are doing well. <laughs> so what do I, as a historian, make of this phenomenal letter? It's probably the most extraordinary document that I've found in my now longish career. As a free man, Shanklin is able to make his own money, and he's proud of his ability. It's a reminder that the enslaved people of Virginia in 1814 were not freshly from Africa. They were fourth, fifth, sometimes even sixth generations in Virginia before 1814. They value money, and they feel cheated that they have had to work for someone else and receive none of the benefit for their strength and their abilities and their intellects. At last, as a free man, Shanklin can prove his merit by his ability to make gold and silver as well as any white man. And he says he's better than Huey. And I think that means he's able to make gold and silver without enslaving somebody else. Now, who's Coakley? I don't know. I haven't been able to find out. My guess, it's just a guess, is that he was an overseer. And that somehow he found out something about this escape and used his strength to try to block it. And in the most wonderful phrase in this wonderful letter, Shanklin explicitly says that subtlety is superior to strength. And people who have been studying slavery in the antebellum South are, have often found that resistance to slavery has to be subtle. It has to be clever because the masters have so much power to inflict pain and to disrupt families by selling people away. 
So the enslaved have to be smarter than their masters in order to resist. They have to pretend to be people they're not. Often they have to pretend they don't know what's going on in order to get away with whatever it is that they seek to achieve. It might be stealing a pig. It might be stealing a pie. It might be slacking from labor for a while. It might be pretending to be lost in the woods so that they couldn't get back to do some job, whatever it was. Subtlety was the great strategy of enslaved people in order to protect their dignity from this system. And Shanklin explicitly says so, that subtlety had been superior to strength, apparently Coakley's strength. Now finally, how does this letter survive? You could imagine Huey just being in a rage and ripping this up and throwing it away. There are very, very few letters from enslaved people that survive from this period of time. Ordinarily, if you go into a wonderful archive like this, you can find hundreds and thousands of letters written from that period of time by free people, usually free people with a lot of money. Uh, it's, very, it's much harder to find letters from uh, free poorer people, and it is almost unknown to find letters from enslaved period people from this period. This survives because it was worth $280 times 11 to Abraham Huey. Why? Because after the War of 1812, the federal government set up a claims commission to compensate masters who could document that their runaway slaves had gone away to the British. And here is a letter that says that's exactly what had happened. So Huey put it in his compensation file, and he got $280 for each of his 11 slaves who had escaped on that night in October of 1814. So Huey showed more greed than pride in preserving this letter. But times were relatively hard for everybody in Virginia at the end of the War of 1812. He needed the money. The last line below this, uh, uh, the second PS, it, it refers to that the, they had escaped via Tangier Island. So Tangier Island was the main refugee camp established by the British and protected by their naval forces during the war. Okay. All right, so in conclusion, I just want to say something about uh, why it is that they're escaping to the warships and what difference does it make for the War of 1812. The British show up in February of 1813 in naval strength, and their goal is to punish the United States for declaring war on the British Empire during the preceding year. And they especially want to stick it to Virginia. Why? Well, Virginia is the, the most powerful and populous of the states in the Union. It is a heartland of resources that are useful for supporting a war effort. And the United States was actively involved in war by invading Canada. The British are hoping that if they could inflict a lot of damage on Virginia's economy, that the United States would have to recall its forces invading Canada and bring them to the seacoast to defend Chesapeake Bay and other exposed regions. Also, the leaders of the nation primarily come from Virginia at that time. 
There had been President Jefferson, and he'd been succeeded by President James Madison, who was president during the war. And his Secretary of State is James Monroe, who will then succeed him as president. And the British understood the Virginians to be the most hostile people in America to British interests. So if there's any people on earth that the British would like to stick it to, other than the French, <laughs> it's the Virginians. And they blamed the Virginians for getting the United States into this war, and it was a war that was helping Napoleon Bonaparte's empire based in France. Now, the initial orders from the government to the naval commanders operating at Chesapeake Bay was to welcome only a handful of runaway blacks and only men who could be useful as pilots and guides. Why? Well, the British needed those pilots and guides, but they did not want the expense of a large number of refugees, which is something they were familiar with because that's what had happened during the American Revolution when they were operating in Virginia. So the orders are very clear. But during the year 1813, at least 600 enslaved people, men, women, and children, steal boats and go out to these British warships. And they're calling the bluff of those naval commanders. Will they turn these people away and send them back to severe punishment by their masters? Or will they violate their orders and increase their own short-term difficulties by crowding their ships, straining their supplies of food and water in order to take in these refugees? Well, the British commanders choose the latter route despite their orders. They do so primarily because they cannot resist, or I should say initially primarily because, they can't resist the temptation to cast the Americans as hypocrites. They were so sick of hearing Americans go on about how they were the world's champions of liberty. And they wanted to make the point that Britain was the world's champion of liberty and this was a wonderful opportunity to highlight their claim by liberating people held in slavery in the United States. And naval commanders are very free about putting this into writing when they explain in their diaries or their letters or in their memoirs. But they also come to realize that these former slaves can solve two very severe problems facing the British operation in the Chesapeake. The first is they're shorthanded. This is an empire that is overstretched by a global war against Napoleon, and these ships do not have enough sailors and enough marines to be fully effective. And indeed, they are losing white sailors and marines who, when they go on shore, run away to desert in order to enter American society where wages are much higher and conditions better. So the British have a problem sending their men on shore that they're not sure how many will come back on the ship. Now, most of them stay loyal, and most of them do go back on the ship. But if you're already shorthanded, to lose a handful here and a handful there every time you make a shore raid is really bad for your operation. So could they afford to turn away hundreds of people who want to help them, who want to be on their ships, 
and they decide they can't afford that. And they would, they would be much better off by welcoming these refugees, enlisting the young men as Marines or as sailors. Young women uh, are extremely useful as nurses and laundresses and in some cases as guides and pilots. That's the first problem, is just that of manpower and woman power. Armies needed women in that time. They couldn't function without some women going along with the army, especially to maintain the health and some rudimentary cleanliness in the camps. The second big problem that these former slaves can solve for the British is knowledge of the land. In the first year of the operation, the British were very hesitant to go very far on shore. They didn't like going into the woods. They found the dense woods along the uh, tidewater shores to be intimidating. They feared being caught in ambushes by American riflemen. And occasionally they'd be successful in an initial raid right along the shores and then they would cease to pursue because they didn't dare go very far into the woods or into the swamps. That changes dramatically in the second year of the operation, when now they have the people who are most experienced, most intimate about this landscape. Indeed, I would say more intimate than their masters, precisely because they have had to travel it and know it very well and know the hiding places, know the roads, know the paths, know where to avoid the slave patrols, know where the livestock are tended to be hidden. And so suddenly the British raids become far more ambitious and far more successful in 1814 on shore than they had been in 1813. And it's essential for the British to increase their rating and to go farther inland because they have more people than ever before on Tangier Island and on these ships. And they have to be fed. The naval operation could not succeed on food being brought from Britain. It could only succeed and persist in Chesapeake Bay if they are drawing food and water from the shores of Chesapeake. And that's what the enslaved people help them do because of years of experience of knowing these nocturnal paths and knowing where things are hidden. And they are also have a vested interest in leading these British raids back to their former farms and plantations because this is a way to stick it to the people who owned them. And it's also a way to get other family members out who are still back in those farms and plantations. So a common pattern is a two-stage escape where a few young men escape, they go, they enlist in the colonial marines, and then they persuade the British naval commanders to lead a raid back to their set of farms and plantations so that they can get out family members. And so that the British can also obtain livestock, pigs, cattle, chicken, um, flour, other foodstuffs so that they could feed the people on these ships and at Tangier Island. Now I just want to, sh if I can get the technology to work here again. You can tell I'm a historian. I like, I'm most comfortable with 18th century technology. <laughs> uh, that's not going to work, so let me try plan B. Okay, so I showed you this map before. These are the types of boats that the British used in their shore raids. 
And this was drawn uh, by an admiral who served in the Chesapeake Bay, uh, Sir Pulteney Malcolm. Uh, he kept it in his journal. He would, uh, he, he would sketch these drawings. Now, the setting here is not Virginia. It's Louisiana. And it comes from the last year of the war after Malcolm had left the Chesapeake and been sent on the New Orleans expedition in early 1815. But it's exactly boats like this that were used in these shore raids along the shores of the Chesapeake. This is a modern artist's attempt to imagine what the colonial marines looked like. The colonial marines were the uh, battalion of um, marines, African-American marines, that was formed during the War of 1812. Some 400 people from the Chesapeake joined the colonial marines. They were all young men. Uh, and this artist is showing a white officer who is pointing, he's drilling, these three African-American recruits. We have no images from that time showing the colonial marines. So the artist has had to show a lot of imagination. We know what marine uniforms in the Royal Navy look like, and he has essentially used those uniforms to show uh, African-Americans in this role. In the background, you see several cabins. Uh, this is a guesstimate of what the refugee camp on Tangier Island would have looked like. And so you have some families in the background of this particular image. So there's a lot of guesswork that goes on here, but this is informed guesswork about what colonial marines and their families would have looked like on Tangier Island. The same artist produced this image of a raid by colonial marines on Benedict, Maryland, on the Patuxent River Valley. In the foreground, they, uh, the Colonial Marines are helping to take away hogsheads of tobacco, which was a prime target of plunder because this could be sold in Europe for the profit of the Marines, the sailors, but especially their commanders. They are also burning some barrels of liquor from a conviction that the liquor had been poisoned and left behind by the Americans. Uh, and there are two and perhaps three episodes of uh, the British suspecting this to be the case. In the middle ground, you see a British naval officer directing uh, African Americans to safety in a British boat. And in the background, you see them burning an American vessel. So in this one image, you're seeing the variety of activities other than combat that the colonial marines were involved in and especially in southern Maryland and the northern neck of Virginia, which were the prime targets for these raids during 1814. So I want to highlight that point by showing you two maps in succession. First is a map that depicts the British naval activity in Chesapeake Bay in 1813, year one. And you can see it's fairly randomly spread up and down the bay and on both shores, primarily though the western shore, and a lot of stuff in the southern bay down around Norfolk. It's a quite different pattern and a more intense pattern a year later in 1814. And you can see everywhere where there are little fires burning, that represents a shore raid. And you can see that it's become concentrated in the middle western Chesapeake Bay in the counties of southern Maryland and the northern neck counties of Virginia. Why? 
Well, those are prime areas where uh, the counties have a majority of African Americans, and it has become a primary goal to target such areas in order to liberate more enslaved people, because liberating them will weaken the American economy and it will strengthen British forces. That's part of the story. The other part is these are the approaches to Washington, D.C. And the goal of these raids is to wear down the will to resist by the common farmers of these areas who are enrolled as militiamen. The defense of the Chesapeake is overwhelmingly entrusted to militiamen because the regular soldiers of the United States are almost all away on the northern frontier. And these raids never break the will to resist on the Virginia side of the Potomac but they certainly exhaust a lot of militiamen who are just wearied out of trying to march up and down in pursuit of these much faster moving ships and boats of the British Empire. And these raids are even more successful on the Maryland side where the will to fight was much lower and opposition to the war was much higher. So by the summer, the midsummer of 1814, there is no more militia resistance anymore in the southern Maryland counties. And what that does is it opens the door to Washington, D.C. for British forces to pour through in August of 1814 to get to Washington, D.C. So the argument is that without the neutralization of Southern Maryland, the British would not have proceeded with their attack on Washington. And they could not have succeeded in the neutralization of Southern Maryland without the help of former slaves who had become colonial Marines and guides. And this is an image that's produced shortly after the war by a critic of slavery, an American critic of slavery, a man named Jesse Torrey. And what you're seeing in the background is the Capitol building uh, in ruins because of the fires set uh, by British Marines, including colonial Marines, that burned the White House and the Capitol building and other public buildings. They didn't burn the whole city. Almost all of the private residences survived, but the public buildings were burnt, including the White House and the Capitol. Now, the commentary in this particular engraving comes from what Jesse Torrey has added to the scene. In the lower right corner, you see a group of enslaved people in chains being supervised by a white man who is a slave trader. And this was a common scene in Washington, D.C., these coffles of slaves being moved from the Upper South to the Deep South through Washington, D.C., which was a major slave market. And this, uh, this was something that was quite shocking to those Americans who uh, were opposed to some degree to slavery to see that in the setting of the home of freedom that, in fact, the slave market was open for business. And Jesse Torrey is commenting that on that in this image. And he adds to the comment by what he's added in the upper right-hand corner where you see two angelic lady liberties looking over the scene. So what this image tries to present to viewers is that the Capitol building burned for the sins of Americans in tolerating slavery in their midst. 
Thank you very much. And I'm happy to take any questions you may have. I believe there are microphones. So you if, you, if you just can raise your hand, I think somebody will bring you a microphone. Oh, there is someone there. I'm sorry, I can't see back in that corner very well. Go ahead. You spoke of the uh, uh, colonial marines, the enslaved people who joined the uh, British Army. What well, it's, it's technically anybody who's a marine in here is going to correct you. It's not <laughs> the army. <laughs> Well, the, the <laughs> They're members Navy, of the Royal Navy. They are Marines. Yes, uh, but go ahead. What happened to those folks uh, and their families uh, when peace was concluded? Okay, uh, the refugees end up, I mentioned, in three different destinations. Uh, it's people who did not serve in the Colonial Marines. They may have had other forms of service. Uh, it may have been working in the dockyard in Bermuda or working on the so-called work party that built the fortifications at Tangier Island. Um, or people who just didn't participate in the war effort. Those ended up going to Nova Scotia or New Brunswick. The colonial marines remained uh, in the naval establishment until the spring of 1816 when they were demobilized. At that time they were serving on Bermuda, which is a primary British naval base. And they, they were not allowed to stay in Bermuda because the local government of Bermuda uh, would not allow them uh, to leave the naval base. So they have to go somewhere else. And they chose to go to Trinidad. So the colonial marines and their families uh, were relocated to Trinidad. And, uh, their, and their villages that they were established in. They were established in a, in a relatively frontier district of Trinidad that was undersettled. So they have the job, they have to cut their new farms out of the dense forest of Trinidad, which is hard work. But the British government provided tools, provided rations, and they were settled by companies. So I think there had been, and I, this may be wrong, there are at least six companies, maybe eight, um, in the Colonial Marines, and each company got a village. And to this day, that area, the villages are called the company villages. And the people have a distinct ethnic identity, the descendants, in Trinidad. They call themselves the Americans. They drop the A and they turn the C of Americans into a K. So they are the Americans. Uh, I have met several Americans in London or here in the United States, who are the descendants of colonial marines, uh, including uh, uh, Tina Dunkley, who is the art gallery director at Clark Atlanta University. And she is uh, the direct descendant of Ezekiel Loney, who was a sergeant in the colonial marines who escaped from Lancaster County, Virginia, during the War of 1812. And I, I had not met her until I was at a conference in Annapolis this past June when she had her name tag on, Tina Dunkley, descendant of Ezekiel Loney. Well, I, I knew who Ezekiel Loney was. So we struck up a, a conversation which, and a friendship which we've maintained since then. And I just recently was down at Clark Atlanta University at her invitation to present this to students and faculty there. <clears throat> could you uh, could you talk a little bit about uh, 
the influence of the fear of slave revolts on politics and government in Virginia mm -hmm. immediately prior to the war? Yes, um, uh, white Virginians, particularly white Virginians who are in leadership positions, tend to think about enslaved people in a highly bifurcated way. They tend to think of the enslaved people that they know best, those uh, immediately around them on their own properties or in their own neighborhoods, as being pretty reliable people who won't be threatened. But they, when they start to think about African Americans in general, particularly those they don't know very well at a distance, then they start to think of them as this abstraction they call the internal enemy. So the ordinary condition in the Virginia County is that people are just going around doing their business on their farms, their shops, their plantations, and there are black people and white people living all in the midst of each other, enslaved and free people, and, and people just go about their business. And then something gets somebody agitated, and uh, some black person says something that is interpreted the wrong way, uh, by some white people who then say the blacks are getting uppity and they must be planning a revolt. And then the concept of the internal enemy suddenly becomes this nightmare fantasy and there's this, this uh, sort of panic that can sweep through these counties where they then start arresting blacks and who have been perceived as being uppity and they start whipping a few and they ask leading questions and people to get out of these torments start to say, yes, I know of this revolt, I wasn't part of it, but these other people that you suspect surely were. And uh, in the worst case scenario, some people get executed. And then the thing blows over. Now every now and then, there is something that looks like it could be a serious slave revolt, but these things are pretty rare. And of course, the most serious is uh, Gabriel uh, attempted revolt in 1800 here in Richmond and vicinity. And that's a case where I think there, there was a real slave plot to revolt that ended up collapsing at the last minute and uh, led to the executions of um, Gabriel and many of his fellow leaders. So the fear of slave revolt is constantly simmering but it's usually on the back burner. And then occasionally there's something that uh, brings it right to the front of people's consciousness and leads to some terrible consequences, usually for African Americans. Yes. Uh, this is a two-part question. Why did the British choose Tangier Island versus, say, Smith Island, which would have been a better one to right. use? And did they also launch their attack from Balt on Baltimore from Tangier Island? And the last part of it, did they keep any records of the enslaved people that they brought to Tangier Island? Okay, let me deal with the last question first. They kept a register of everybody who came to Tangier Island. Unfortunately, I haven't been able to find it. And no one that I've talked to who's also been looking for such things has been able to find it might be stuck in some English country house somewhere. Or it might be buried somewhere and mis having been mislabeled at the public record office. I don't know. I wish I could have found it. 
what they did keep that does survive is that every warship kept a log. And usually it's just recording um, movements of the ship. But, it, but when they do receive uh, refugees coming on board, they will usually record the numbers coming on board and sometimes they will record the names and the genders and the ages and the, you know, of these people. So there, are, there is that kind of documentation uh, which has been immensely useful. Okay, you had two other questions that came before that. One was why Tangier and not Why Smith? Tangier Island versus Okay, Ace. well, Smith Island had a bad reputation because they'd used Smith Island during the Revolution and it had become a death trap because of smallpox, uh, and which killed most of the African Americans who were in refugee camps there. So uh, I, I'm sure the British, I have not seen a document explicitly saying this, but my guess is that the British don't want to try their luck a second time there. And it also may be that African Americans might not have wanted to escape so much if they were going to go to Smith Island because of its reputation as being deadly. Now, it, it, was a, it was kind of a sensational episode that you'd have a smallpox epidemic, but still memories live on, and Smith Island has a very negative reputation. Tangier Island is useful because the Navy can control it. It's far enough away from the shore that uh, it's not going to be vulnerable to an attack by the Virginia militia. Uh, so that recommends it. Uh, it's got some water. It's not great water. They thought it would be better water than it was, so they thought it would be sufficient. And the population was very small on Tangier Island, and they were pretty apolitical people who were just trying to get by. So for all of those reasons, it, it recommended uh, itself to the British. Now, you had one other question. Was the attack on Baltimore yes. instituted uh, from Tangier Island? Yes. The, the, after the attack on Washington, the, the British withdraw uh, from the Patuxent Valley and they went down to Tangier Island. And there they reorganized and then they went back up the bay to attack Baltimore. Thank you. Yes. That was a great presentation. Thank you. Um, and I just have a quick comment before my question. As an American, I'm always rooting for the Americans to win. Mm -hmm. So yeah, go guys. <laughs> As an African-American, I'm listening to your story, and I'm going, yeah, go, go, go. <laughs> yeah. Watch that White House burn. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so, so thank you for that history. Um, were there any freedmen fighting for the Americans in this war, number one? And I have a lot of questions. I won't right. get into all of them, obviously. That's one. Uh -huh. And that's easy, yes or no. Can the I other, say yes and expand? Well, <laughs> yeah, yes and expand. That's okay. one. Okay, so, so, so that's what's so striking, is that this, this war doesn't break entirely along racial lines, in that free African Americans, what they want to do is to prove to other Americans that they are patriotic Americans too. Now, they are prevented by the law from serving in the American army, although there are some mixed-race people who are able to pass as white people in order to serve in the army, including some runaway slaves, one of whom got killed in the battle, the attack at Fort McHenry. What's much more common is that free African Americans serve in very large numbers in the Navy and in privateers. And the black, free black population is especially large in Baltimore, and Baltimore is a real, from the British perspective, a hornet's nest of privateers. And there are literally uh, there are at least 2,000 free blacks 
who serve on privateers of the US Navy during the war. So you've got free blacks who are serving to fight for the United States because they have something of an interest in the United States. And they're trying to get a better interest in the United States by impressing other people. Unfortunately, it does not work very well um, because they continue to suffer extreme discrimination despite their exploits during the war. Enslaved people do not have that option unless they can run away and pass as both free and white. Um, that's very difficult to do. So their option to get freedom is to, f is to help the British as liberators. So, and now you had an additional question. I did, just one more, and thanks. Okay. That's a great, great answer. The other is, this book goes up to slavery in Virginia until 1832, is yes. that correct? Yeah. Are you writing another book? Slavery in Virginia up until? Not right now. The Yankees win? No, my, my next book is going to be a history of the American Revolution. Okay. Um, but I, uh, I have an idea to do something that will focus on Virginia in the 1820s and 1830s in the future. I don't know what form that will take. But I've become very interested in many of the characters on the free side of this story and what happens to their Virginia as the 1820s and the 1830s unfold. Yes. Are there any descendants of uh, Bartlett Shanklin uh, still living in Nova Scotia or, or, or descendants right. of other uh, slaves who made their way to freedom there? Oh, yes. Uh, the, my understanding is that uh, the um, Afro-Nova Scotian community primarily descends from um, the refugees of the War of 1812. Now, there were the earlier refugees in the Revolution, um, but overwhelmingly, they were relocated to Sierra Leone in West Africa during the 1790s. So the Nova Scotia had a very small black population in 1814 until you get this new pulse of refugees. So there are a great number of descendants. There is a black cultural center in Preston, which is the township that Shanklin came from. And I had occasion to give a talk in, in um, Halifax a couple of years ago, and Dr. Henry Bishop, who is the director of the Black Cultural Center in Preston, came to my talk, and he said that he was sure he knew the descendants of Bartlett Shanklin, but that at some point they had changed their last name to Smith. <laughs> and he also had an interesting theory. He said that he didn't think that Coakley was an overseer. He thought that Coakley was a loyal slave that somehow had to be overpowered by those who wanted to escape. Uh, now again, I, there's nothing in the documentary record that, that says that, but it's a, it's a viable theory because there are cases uh, in which slaves are so fearful of resistance that they think there's a marginal advantage to betray any sign of resistance. Uh, that's what happened in Nat Turner's revolt, where two slaves got very nervous when it was, looked like it was falling apart and wanted to save themselves, and so they informed. Uh, and they got rewarded with their freedom at the end. So Nat Turner's revolt freed two slaves, the two slaves who had betrayed the revolt. Um, how did you come across the letter? Well, I came across the letter because uh, I had a lead. I, I read a, a genealogist piece where he was uh, tracing colonial marine families, and he referred to something called RG76, Record Group 76, at the National Archives as something he had drawn upon. 
I'd never seen it cited in any scholarly work anywhere. I didn't know what it was. So I went uh, to College Park, Maryland. RG76 is um, part of the Secretary of State's records. So it's not a place you'd ordinarily go to look if you were interested in slavery in Virginia. Uh, I went there and the finding aid was virtually non-existent. It was about three lines and said this had to do with a claims commission set up to compensate masters after the end of the War of 1812. And was very vague about how many boxes were in this collection. So I asked to see the whole thing. And to my delight, they brought a whole card out with 11 boxes of material. Now, some of it is deadly dull stuff. It's, it's you know, financial information material. But still, if you analyze it, there's some interesting patterns you can draw out of the financial stuff. Some of it is these extraordinary legal depositions describing escapes. And there are seven letters in there written by former slaves from the Chesapeake to former masters of family members. And the first one I found was the Shanklin letter. And when I did it, I had no precedent for it. I was not expecting to find any letters written by former slaves in this collection. And I came across this one. I said, this doesn't make any sense for a white person to write. What's going on here? And then I realized that I'd seen the name before. When I'd worked at the Library of Virginia, there was a collection of papers which is about uh, the militia's efforts to suppress these escapes. And they had the deposition that I quoted describing the escape I found here in Richmond. And there was a list of the slaves who escaped with evaluation, and I went back and double-checked in my notes, and there was Bartlett Shanklin's name. So it was by connecting what I'd found here in Richmond with what I found in College Park that I was able to tell this story today. 